I'm afraid that if this is not the moment that we actually start making systemic, lasting, permanent change, then there is no moment. There is no moment where we will finally stop the, the internal uh, systemic governmental um, levers that are crushing black men. At Clio, our mission is to transform the practice of law for good, and increasing access to justice is a major component of that. Clio fundamentally believes in equity and justice as critical pillars of the legal and judicial system, and we are committed to using our platform to advocate for change. In light of recent events, we're conducting a series of interviews to address the systemic racism that is pervasive in our society. We need to be talking about these topics in the legal industry so that we may create a more equitable and accessible justice system. We hope these conversations can play some part in moving things forward. Our first guest in this series is Raphael Davis-Williams, a longtime member of the extended Cleo family who is a civil rights attorney and the first ever Director of Equity and Inclusion at the ACLU of Ohio. Raphael, usually we get to chat under lighter circumstances, but we're very grateful to have you here today. Thank you so much, Jack, for having me, and um, thank you and Cleo for uh, having this conversation, having the the um, concern and the and the frankly the fortitude um, to address these subjects. Well, thank you for being part of the conversation with us today, Raphael. And before we dig into some of our main topics, can you start off by giving us an idea of the work that you do with the ACLU? Sure. Um, as the Director of Equity and Inclusion, it's uh, both a forward-facing um, and an internal component. Uh, my initial con internal component was to ensure that as an organization, we were being equitable, inclusive, uh, have diversity. And one of the things that we are primarily focusing on now is belonging. Um, that's another part of it. It's easy. I shouldn't mm. say it's easy, but we're, we're accustomed to hearing uh, about diversity and equity and maybe even inclusion. But belonging is as important because you can have all of those other um, issues uh, addressed, but if the individual does not feel like they are that like as though they belong as a part of the organization, if they don't feel like um, their voice is heard, if they don't feel like um, that they can dissent without repercussion, um, that doesn't create an equitable or inclusive workplace environment. So uh, my first task was to ensure that that was where we are um, internally, and I will say uh, this is for everyone. For, for my organization, for your organization, and anyone else addressing this, these aren't uh, issues that you address and then it's fixed and then you move on. These are ongoing, long-term, intentional conversations that have to go on for a, a, a considerable amount of time. Um, so that's one aspect. And then the other aspect of my, uh, my uh, role is external. And I am doing exactly what we're doing now, talking to other companies, talking to government entities, um, trying to get everyone to understand the importance um, of, the, of having someone specifically um, addressing these issues within um, a, a particular uh, company or corporation. And Raphael, I'm curious, what drew you to this kind of work, both, both in the diversity, inclusion, and belonging side of things, as well as just the, your general draw to, to civil rights related work? Um, that's a, probably to give a 
full and complete answer is longer than we have uh, to go into. In, but, I, but I will say, growing up um, as an African-American uh, in the United States in the 70s and 80s, uh, going to predominantly uh, white schools, um, having most of my interaction be with um, non-people of color, um, I learned at a very early age what it means to be othered, what it means to be different. Um, it, it didn't, you know, you know, no matter what my credentials were, no matter um, what my, um, how, how educated I was or, or what was going on, people saw my skin tone first. And that was the first thing um, that usually, you know, had, you know, had an impact. And so uh, after I had a career in broadcast journalism, where frankly, I left that profession because I got tired of trying to convince them to not um, in their daily news broadcast other uh, African-American men, um, I went into the legal profession where I figured rather than having to be on the, on the receiving end, I'm going to be the one who's filing the lawsuits. <laughs> right. I'm going to be the one who's going to push the issue. I'm going to say to you, you are going to be equitable uh, and diverse and inclusive. Uh, and and, and uh, that's really how I got into civil rights work. And after about 10 years of uh, litigation, uh, uh, civil rights litigation, I was also on the board of directors for the ACLU during uh, that period of time. And as my time was drawing to an end, the executive director who I was, who I, I absolutely adore as a great man uh, came to me and he was like, what do you think about a career change? And I was like, I don't, I, I've already had two. I would really like to stick with, <laughs> with just one. Uh, but after um, having conversations with him, uh, I ended up here. Uh, and frankly, as the, uh, this was a, I've been in this position a little over a year now, and this was a brand new position uh, throughout the entire, we have 54 affiliates across the United States, and I am the first uh, to hold this position, and I have a lot of conversation with our national office in New York, um, and we are, because we want to, as an organization that is a civil liberties and civil rights organization, we want to make sure that these issues are the ones that we are are, are primarily focusing on. So that that's kind of, I've never really left um, I, I've always been in the same area. It's just been, uh, which area am I pushing from at this particular point? As a journalist, I was pushing from the, I'm going to give you the information about all of the awfulness. Um, as a lawyer, I was going to bring, uh, <laughs> you know, lawsuits against the awfulness. And now in this position, I'm trying to say, well, maybe if we can just get to the awfulness before it starts and help people to figure out why this is beneficial to corporations and, and uh, entities, uh, that might that that might uh, you know save us all some some litigation time and money. <laughs> and as, as you as you pointed out, Raphael, you've you've dedicated so much of your life's work to changing society for the the better. It's really been something you've been you've spent your your life's work on. We're over the course of the last two weeks seeing this really dramatic turning point, or maybe boiling over uh, in, the, in the United States and. And worldwide, uh, in response to the the deaths of George Floyd and so many others before him, uh, at the hands of police, but also the the manifestation of the uh, systematic and institutional uh, injustice and inequities we see in our society, can you talk about what it's been like from your perspective, who's been on the front lines of this fight against systemic racism for a long, for so long, to to see what's happened in the last few weeks and 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 what you think it all means? Uh, sure. Um, Jack, it has been, um, 
a, a real range of emotions. And um, I, I have to say, um, I am on, at one point I'm hardened by uh, what's going on, but I, ha I have to tell you how painful, and it is painful, and I don't think um, many people really fully appreciate, unless um, you are a, and I, and I, and I don't mean to, um, what I'm trying to say is uh, there is a uniqueness about being black in America. Um, and so I do often because of, you know, the job that I have, I include people of color because I know all people of color are marginalized to some extent, but it is unique to black people and it is even more unique to black men. And I, I will tell you, I have not, uh, I, I know you guys kind of keep up with the, with the news down here, uh, but I have not watched another black man get lynched or shot or murdered or killed since uh, Walter Scott, which was about four or five years ago, who was a black man who had been stopped by a police officer and was, had a warrant and took off running and he was shot in the back. And then the police officer tried to put a gun in his hand and do all those things. I, I, I don't want, and since then, so I have not seen the Ahmaud Arbery sh shooting. I have not seen uh, George Floyd the, the George Floyd video. And I haven't seen any of it because I don't want to watch another black man die at the hands of a white person for no reason. And so this has been hard. Um, but what I will say is the uh, feelings that a lot of people are having now, it does feel different. And I'm not sure why. Um, and frankly, I get, a, even in now as we're talking about this, I get a little knot in my stomach because uh, I'm afraid that if this is not the moment that we actually start making systemic, lasting, permanent change, then there is no moment. It, it, there is no moment where we will finally stop the, the internal uh, systemic governmental um, levers that are crushing black men. And I get nervous, even as we are in a moment now where we have a lot of people who are supporting us. I've seen protests internationally from Germany and London and in, in uh, Canada and all over the world. And I get concerned that if this isn't the moment that things start to actually change, I don't believe a moment exists. And that's, 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 uh, that's concerning. Fully agree. And I know it's early to be extrapolating from what you're seeing, Raphael, but you did make a comment. It feels different. Does it feel like a turning point to you? And, and how, how do we maybe help catalyze what is uh, so front of mind over the last two weeks into what is hopefully permanent change? So I think it feels different because we, we're, we're, you know, I, I have been watching this happen to, uh, you know, black men since Rodney King. Um, this isn't new. Um, no. What we're seeing is not, this isn't something, you know, it's not like, you know, this is the first time we had it. We have Rodney King. We have James Byrd Jr. who was drugged behind a pickup truck until there was nothing left of him. Um, these are these are things. So I, I say it feels new or, or different this time because I believe the 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 
the uh, actual what what is making this different is uh, the proliferation of computers that we hold in our hands that we call you know you know cell phones. This and the ability to to videotape what has been going on um, and then instantly put that uh, video into the, the the public conversation. That's why it's changing because I guarantee you, even the 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 video we saw this morning. I, I'm not sure if you guys saw it, but there's a video of a 75 year old white guy being shoved to the ground. Yeah, you know, knocking his head and so. And the first thing the police officer said was he tripped. Now, if we did not have the video of that, whose version of that would be believed? That 75-year-old man who's lying on the ground with blood coming out of his ear or the police officer in riot gear? We're going to believe him. And that's what's changed now is that Even the initial have, police testimony around George Floyd was he was resisting arrest. Exactly, and, exactly. And, we, and we've seen- The video disproves seen, all of that. We've seen so many different angles that says this man was never, and even if he was resisting, Jack, did he deserve to die? Was it was no. that was that is that where he needed to be because he so he resisted? Does is does that uh, merit a death sentence? Yeah, were the officers' lives at risk? Right, right, right. What was he doing that really required that level of escalation? And that's really why. And, and I think there's enough. There are enough people who are not people of color who see that video, and they may. I, I feel like there's people who probably sit and they say, you know, I understand there is racism. I hear. I heard. That. You know, I well, you know, I hear it's racism, but you know, you just gotta work within the system, and you just gotta, you know, hang in there and do all those things. What did what could George Floyd do differently, so that he would still be alive? Um, it was heartbreaking to learn, um, and 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 I will tell you, I've been weeping, so I, I'm gonna apologize now. <laughs> I, no I'm not, apologies, my, my my tears, if I if I go there, are not about it is just because I'm angry more than anything. Um, but I, it broke my heart to learn George Floyd's mother passed away three years ago. He was lying on that floor with that man on the ground with that man's knee on his, and he's calling for his mother who is already deceased. Yeah. What is going, what I don't, you know, that's, how are we, how do we classify ourselves as civil human beings when that's what we're doing to another human being? I, 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 you know, so yeah, I, I, I think the only thing that's really changed now um, is that we are able to document this. I, I don't, I think it's Will Smith. I'm not sure one or the, I think it's Will Smith who said, Ray, you know, it's not happening more frequently. It's just being videotaped. It's just being recorded. That's the difference. And so I think that's why this moment feels differently because on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery, who we, you know, see this man jogging and then Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd. I think the rapid fire succession, and it's all documented, each one of them, their video of it, that makes us say, whoa, everyone collectively, let's pump the brakes. There, there's a, a Twitter thread documenting, I, I think it's over 260 cases of police brutality over the course of these protests as well. And, and again, e each and every one of these is a, a video snippet that in fairly unequivocal terms is showing uh, the police, you know, acting improperly. Uh, and it, it does feel like that's the tipping point maybe is yeah. that we are not in a, he said, he said, exactly type, type, type of circumstance. 
and uh, maybe talking more about police misconduct, uh, Raphael, when, when so much of your civil rights work is focused on uh, various aspects of employment law, fair housing, and uh, and lastly, police misconduct, which is obviously front of mind given the, everything that's happening around us. Um, there's obviously a long history of police violence against black men and women uh, in America. Uh, what do you think some of the most important things for people to understand uh, that underlies all of this that is, is maybe not obvious to the, to the average listener? I think, um, first, I think that's a really good question. And, and here's, here's why, because um, even as I have, or, or I've, um, I'm still in the process of kind of winding down my, my private practice as I'm working with the ACLU, I still have a few cases. And, and, and one of the cases I'm still currently litigating is a police misconduct case, uh, not where the uh, individual, there was no violence against him, but he's uh, an LGBTQ guy who, uh, is uh, HIV positive and was in jail for over you know 18 days and they didn't give him his HIV meds to the point that he went from just from being undetectable to having full-blown AIDS. Um, it's the it's the ease with which law enforcement and not just police officers. It's the ease with which law enforcement discards black men. They throw us away. It doesn't matter. Um, I, one of the cases that I litigated, um, you know, fairly early on in my litigation career was, a um, he, he was a 70, you know, year old, uh, veteran, a uh, white guy actually. Um, but he was paralyzed, um, on his, on the entire left side of his body. And as a long, you know, without going into it all, he said to the police officer at the instant he was pulled over, I am paralyzed. I cannot move my left arm. Um, by the end of the encounter, and it's all videotaped, they had broken this man's shoulder in 12 places because he wouldn't put his paralyzed arm behind his back. What I believe has to happen, there has got to, I, I have advocated this and I say this, I say take every badge, every gun, every ounce of authority away from every law enforcement uh, officer in this country and retrain them. And you don't get that authority again, until you prove you are worthy of that authority. And I say that because in this moment, in this instance, you and I are having a conversation. We are on equal footing. If I'm having this conversation with a law enforcement officer and he's not in uniform, there's a balance of power. Once he puts that uniform on, once he has that badge, once he has that gun, the balance of power changes and he has the ability to take my life from me and he gets, and it's exonerated. It's okay. I don't have the same authority over him. I, and listen, I, I, I've heard it. I've heard it all. I say, you know, and, and frankly, I, I am not at a point where I, I'm not feeling gracious um, because this is, I, I know there's a point and a moment for grace, but I'm not feeling gracious when I hear the, the statement that law enforcement is hard. Being a police officer is hard. Well, yeah, it is hard. And if it's so hard that you can't, you, you can't figure out how to not kill someone, you need to find a different profession. That's not the job you need. Yeah, you can have it. I can have a bad day. Jack, you can have a bad day. If you have a bad day, Jack, what's going to happen? Is, is someone going to lose their life because you made, because you were, you were pissy that day? I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> say that. Um, That's fine. <laughs> I mean, but, but you, you are not dealing with someone, you know, if, if, if there's a, a moment where you're going to have that, you're not going to deal with that. Law enforcement officers, if you have a bad day, if you're angry and you're upset, 
you can use the power of the government to take my life. That has got to change. And I will tell you to, to a, a follow-up to your question, why is it? Because it's systemic. And when we say systemic, just to give it real clear what we mean. So those cases that I litigate, when I litigate those cases of police misconduct, what happens is I'm often going up. In fact, I, I don't believe, I, I'm trying to think in my um, probably 12 years, 10, 12 years of actual litigation, I think I can count maybe two uh, attorneys of color who were my opposing counsel. I can count on my hand maybe one, uh, two, maybe, I know actually one, you know, two federal judges um, who were there. So what happens, and, and when we get to the point where you go through that entire process, so you have the incident that precipitates the lawsuit, and then you're in the lawsuit, and then you're dealing with the same um, people who have the same privilege um, who are making the decisions. And even if you get to trial in the Southern District of Ohio, uh, we are predominantly white and predominantly old. And I had a case where it was a, a race relation. It was a, a case where an African-American family had a cross burned in their yard. And we went to trial on that. And we ended up settling it that morning. But the jury pool for a case that was drawn from the Southern District of Ohio for a race based case where a cross was burned in, in an African-American family's yard was all white. That, those, that's systemic. So I can't convince you, Jack, to not have sympathy for people who look like you. When you are sitting in a jury box and you're looking at the person who's sitting on the stand and they look like your mother or they look like your sister or your neighbor or your coworker, and they all look like look the same. I can't overcome that. I can't overcome what you've learned um, about me as a six foot four black man. I can't over. I can't. I can't do anything to take to unwire to disconnect those connections that say he's likely not true, not telling the truth, or he probably did, or even if he didn't, he did something. <laughs> that's the. That's what we're. That's what we're. When we talk about. Uh, systemic racism, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what's baked into the system. And, and, and I, I say this to my, the staff at the ACLU frequently. I say to them often, um, we didn't get here last night. We're not going to leave tomorrow morning. Right. <laughs> These, <laughs> the things that we're dealing with, we have literally been dealing with for hundreds of years. So there's, there's space to do this. But, but I do believe there has to be the willingness um, to change. There's got to be a there's got to be a willingness to change. And I want to unpack that that conversation a little bit. I, I think there's systemic racism. We we we'll, we'll talk about in a in a moment, and maybe how we start moving toward that better tomorrow um, as a society. And then there's the systemic racism, and, and maybe the the way police forces um, are acting in response to this systemic racism that is resulting in people losing their lives. This is. Right. The, the, the stakes are so high. And with, with Greg Doucette's Twitter thread highlighting, again, several hundred now, just in the case, in the space of a few days, uh, um, these documented video uh, recordings of police mis misconduct uh, amidst these protests, uh, the conversation seems to be shifting from, again, a tipping point seems to be are we talking about a few bad apples in the police force? Or are, we, are we talking about a, a bad or, orchard, you know? And, right, and, right. <laughs> uh, and it does seem like it's uh, indexing towards the, the latter. 
and you're starting to see what might have seemed like radical ideas even just a few months ago around defunding the police, yeah, demilitarizing yeah. the police. Yeah. Um, we look at how policing is done in countries like the UK or even Canada closer to mm -hmm. home. Um, police are, are not equipped in the same kind of militarized way. Things do not escalate as quickly. Um, things, things are more peaceful and, 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 it feels like the United States maybe does need to do some soul searching around how its policing is done. Um, you, you talked about what, again, might seem like a radical idea three months ago, but seems imminently practical today. today that let's take away the badges and the guns until there's retraining done. Can you tell us more about what, what you think needs to happen on the policing front to really change the, the daily tragedy that is happening for, for black people? Sure. Um, so I, I will start and say, I, um, I, I'll push back slightly on whether or not we're at the point where we have a bad orchard. We're getting real close to it, though. I, I, my undergraduate uh, college days were uh, spent at my, my undergraduate university. One of the things they did was uh, there were three things. It was journalism, teaching, and law enforcement. Um, and uh, I know a fair number of good um, honest, uh, fair police officers. No question. And we've seen that in the, the, the protests. You know, we, sure, we're we're, we're sure. seeing cops lay down their badges and lay down sure. their guns. Lay and, the, and, right, 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 right. And, and join right. the protests. Uh, the, uh, I forget which exact uh, police chief it was, but said, let's turn this into a parade rather than a protest and right, celebrate right. George Lloyd's uh, I, I life. I saw that. Yeah, yes, yes, I know exactly. So, so that's it. And, and so I don't want to give necessarily... Uh, uh, short shrift to that because I think it is important to say that probably the vast majority are good. But as we were saying, you mentioned bad apple. And the reason I just saw a meme um, on Facebook with Chris Rock saying, uh, given a beautiful uh, analogy to bad apple, saying, uh, if American Airlines has a bad apple <laughs> as a pilot <laughs> who says, you know, I, I didn't feel like landing on the landing strip today. I thought I'd crash into a mountain. You can't, you, you know, you, there's some professions that you can't have a bad apple. Right. And, one uh, apple, one bad right. apple is too many. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I heard uh, probably one of the most encouraging things, uh, I, I think it was yesterday, um, it's a, I don't know if it's a town or city in, uh, in uh, Minnesota where, where all of this uh, started, um, uh, that said they were disbanding their entire police uh, force, and they were going to uh, revamp it and uh, relaunch it as a uh, public safety uh, office. And part of it is, is it, it, I'm going to give you a, a, some American history here. Um, the police, uh, police forces as they are known today, <laughs> uh, began as slave catching organizations. And I don't know hmm. if everyone knows that. The actual, that. the actual star that is the badge that we're all so familiar with, with whatever it is, it started with slave catching groups. That's what they were tasked to do from the beginning. Wow. <laughs> and it hadn't changed. They were chasing black men down then, and they are chasing black men down today. And that is, and that's a fundamental problem. We are not in the uh, mindset of keeping the peace. It's an us against them. Now, I, I will, uh, you know, you know, we, you know, I, I love the uh, sibling uh, relationship that we have with with uh, Canada. <laughs> um, 
I love when you know the, the, the you you guys we you know when 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 Americans uh, make fun of you guys for being so nice. <laughs> um, I think there's a little bit of jealousy there because I wish I wish people here were as kind as all of the people um, at Clio who I know and love and who I've met and who it just never even came you know you know some some idea of race or or. Uh, you know, something like that never came up. I, I, I do believe, though, the, the, the violence that we see is intrinsic and unique to the United States because of the origins of how law enforcement began, policing began. And that's why I suggest that we start over. I am not saying that we don't need law enforcement. I am not saying that there aren't idiots out there who are always going to, you know, you know, shoot up places and hurt people and, and rob places and do all of those things. So yeah, we do need um, a, a, you know, someone who's doing that. But what most of the places, I live here in Columbus, Ohio, I live in the Linden neighborhood. And everyone knows Linden is one of um, the most over-policed areas in the state of Ohio because it's an all-black, economically disadvantaged, poor neighborhood. Uh, my street actually is a, a very odd intersection. Uh, we're in, uh, we, I won't go into our municipal, I frankly don't even understand it, but where we are, we are in the, we're on the, we're the last street in a township uh, that separates um, us from the actual larger city of Columbus. So on my street, on any given day, we are sitting here, and I can tell you, I watch the Franklin County Sheriff's Department go by. I watch the Columbus Police Department go by. I watch the Mifflin Township Police go by. I watch the Clinton Township Police go by. It is one street. <laughs> and I can tell you, since we've lived here, we, we, we often, uh, my spouse and I sit outside at, at night and we listen to crickets. And I'm not exaggerating. We listen to crickets. We get up in the morning, we sit and listen to birds chirp. No one in my neighborhood, in my street, we're, we're not violent. And we certainly, even if we were, don't deserve to have seven law enforcement agencies <laughs> policing us. You know, right. it, you know that's so, it is a fundamental uh, shift in what the purpose of law enforcement is. What the purpose, it is a safe, it is about safety. It's a, it is to protect and serve. George Floyd was not being protected. He was not being served. And I, and I won't go into, I can go through the entire list, but none of the people. Um, who have died at the hands of law enforcement were being protected or served. My, your, our, our, the difference between me and you is you, I, we have the same instinct. If someone is accosting us or grabbing us or there's some tension, you, you tend to tense up and you'll do these things. You do that and they say, oh, I, you know, that's okay. I do that and I'm, I'm shot dead because I was, re because I was resisting. H how is that? Why is that? That's where I think the, that's where the training, that's where it has to be uh, a fundamental shift uh, in the mentality. You know, I don't, I, I have, I'm trying to remember in the, in the times I've been um, to, uh, to uh, Vancouver, I, I'm trying to remember seeing law enforcement vehicles uh, <laughs> or, you know, police presence. I don't, I don't, I'm not even really remembering, um, but here we have the, 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 the police presence is so prevalent and there's always, there, it, is, it doesn't feel like they're there to help you. It always feels like you're just a sneeze away from you know, being pounced upon. 
Yeah. And that has got to change. I hear people say all of the time, I, I grew up, I, I did not grow up thinking of the police as something, you go, the police show up, you go the other way. That, that's a reality. That's not a, <laughs> that's right. not a, uh, right. As it's not a, You're not a, you don't have a feeling of comfort that no. the police are here. I'm safer. <laughs> oh, this yay, is a the police are, right. <laughs> exactly. Yay, the police yeah. are here. No, I, that will send, I'm going in the opposite direction. I don't want to be anywhere near um, what's going on here. And, 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 and that's where I think the change has got to happen. We have to change the mentality and I don't know. And it's got to be abrupt. I, I don't, this, this idea that we're going to take, you know, as long as it took us, you know, 500 years uh, of, of going through this stuff again. No, that's not going to be the case. I say, you know, in the next 60 days, every law enforcement officer uh, uh, agency, you start with a portion, a third, a quarter, whatever you want to do of your law enforcement officer, and they are, cool. I, uh, yeah, it's going to cause all of this angst and all of these things. Yeah, well, that, is, that should be your incentive to do it faster. And you retrain those people so that they understand they are there to help, not to be there as an antagonist. And we have video. I, I'm a part of an organization. We're, I met with our city mayor uh, just a couple of days ago. We have a follow-up meeting with him. Um, we have video that's just pouring in. Uh, and this is not affiliated with the ACLU. I want to make sure I say that. That's just uh, separate. But we have video pouring in um, where you see officers antagonizing protesters and to the point that they respond. And the moment they respond, they pounce on them. Where's that? You know how? Where is that helpful? How is that? How is that advancing us um, in a in a space where um, we are supposed to tr where I am supposed to trust um, the law enforcement? I, I don't doubt. I don't call the police. I've I've heard. I don't call the police because I often believe that if ever I call the police, I should expect one that they're gonna they're gonna when they see it, it's me, they're gonna think I'm the suspect. And so before I can explain that I'm not that I was calling about something else. I'll, you know, I'll have to do, deal with that encounter. Or when they do show up, if it happens to be a person of color, I may be, as that woman was in Central Park, putting that person's life in danger by simply calling the police. That's yeah. not the way it's, we know that's not the way it's supposed to work, but that's the way it happens more often than not. So let's zoom out a little bit next, Raphael. If we think about the police as the, the intake system for the rest of the, the justice system, there's obviously a lot of inequity yep. there and uh, if you, if you're a black person, you're, you're maybe lucky if that interaction doesn't actually end in the end of your life. But if, if you are lucky enough or depending on your perspective, unlucky enough to enter the rest of that perspective, that, that justice system, you're still experiencing systemic racism. Tell us about what that looks like on the inside of, uh, other aspects of the, the justice system. Sure. Um, I, we touched on this earlier and that is, that is just it. It is, um, it is expected, and, and I, wish, I, I, I wish I had the numbers, but I don't, but, I, but I'm happy to get them to you. But we have all the specific numbers that say um, how um, African-Americans are more likely uh, to be arrested for, say, marijuana use. Um, and once they're arrested, they're likely to be sentenced to longer sentences. And if they're sentenced to longer sentences, they're uh, unlikely to be able to get parole. That, when we talk about a system that is designed to oppress, that's, that's, what, we, that's what we mean. Um, there are, right now, one of the, the key initiatives of the ACLU of Ohio is to reform or eliminate Ohio's cash bail system. We have people in this country who are sitting behind bars who have not been found guilty of anything. I'm going to say that again. We have people sitting behind bars, and I'm not talking for a weekend. 
We're talking months, sometimes years at a time because they could not come up with $300 for bail. Right. How is that fair? I mean, where do, you know, this, we, we love to tout as Americans, we love to tout our constitution and that, you're, that you are innocent until proven guilty. And yet we are okay with caging people for months or years at a time, not because we know they did something wrong, but because they could not afford. And here, and if you want to go into, like you say, you want to broaden it, you know, broaden it out, not even necessarily with the justice system, but why can't they afford a $400 bail? Because they don't have the education. And why don't they have the education? Because the education system uh, is discriminatory. And they don't have a good job. Why don't they have a good job? Because they can't get a, a good job because the people who are doing the hiring look like you, not like me. And so they hire people who look like you, not like me. And it's and it's a it's this it's this amazing, unbelievable web of 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 simple of 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 of, of the the structural right it's right races it's, it's, it's just into, every aspect of the system sink. exactly exactly and so yeah so yeah you have these people who are unable to pay three hundred dollars because they've never been able they just just they've been they have simply been uh, cut out of uh, society. And then when you they're, ask, they're guilty <laughs> of the crime of being poor. Being black, yeah, they 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 were they were born in the wrong zip code. Um, there was a, years ago, uh, Oprah Winfrey did a um, uh, one of her shows, and it is they showed us we saw this in a lot. It's been well over you know ten years ago. Um, Chicago, the city of Chicago, where we were having our our initial um, <laughs> yeah um, uh, gatherings. Um, she showed the difference. Same school district. It was Chicago. Um, North side, south side, same school district, and they showed the school. They went to the south side, holes in the roof, um, four students to one laptop, uh, no facility. The gym was awful. It was it was horrible, dimly lit. It was just it was a a wretched place that you were sending all of these people of color, these children of color, to get an education, and you drive forty five minutes north <laughs> to the north side. Big, beautiful palatial, again, big, beautiful palatial buildings. They have, they have Olympic-sized swimming pools. Every student has their own uh, personal laptop. There are all these things, and you go, well, well, wait a minute. They're in the same school district. <laughs> They're in the exact same school district. How can that disparity be so great? And it is because of the way we're funding school, uh, funding education, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but it is all interrelated, and that's that's you know, it's when you when you ask about the justice system and, and some of the intrinsic unfairness in it, it starts from birth. It starts at an at a young age. And, and here, I, we were talking earlier. One of the things that um, is sometimes uncomfortable for me. Um, I, I'm going to say, my parents. I love my parents to death. Um, neither of my parents have four year edu- uh, have four year degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the grace of God, my, I do have it for, I, I, you know, my brother and sister and I were able to get educated. And it's, it's an odd feeling when you start having these conversations and you realize it's just the slightest difference. It was just one click of the notch where my life would have taken a completely different path. And, and it's random. It, it, it's, you know, it's, there's, no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's that I had parents, my mother grew up in the, the, uh, the really, really rural parts of Central Texas. My dad grew up in Houston. Um, fortunately, they 
had a, a strong sense of education. So they made sure that we had an education because they did not want us to suffer through life. As, and they didn't suffer, but they worked really, really hard for not a lot of money for a whole lot of years. Um, and that is the thing that really kind of motivates me to remember when I'm having conversations with everyone, it's literally the, the, you know, a click of a notch um, of a random, you know, you know, kind of happening where all things would have gone in a completely different direction. So the, it's not just that, that's why I, 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 um, I, I speak broadly, uh, more broadly, because it, you can't just look at it as the justice system, because the justice system is a reflection of every other system uh, in society. It, is, it just happens to be the one uh, that we're using now. The 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution allows um, it ended slavery, except if you were found, uh, if you were in prison. It allows slave labor if you were in prison, and that remains true today. And it's not a, it's not coincidence to me that most of the people, that the, 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 the majority of people who are behind bars are black men. Uh, when this COVID thing started, the first thing uh, our, our government did was put the prisoners to work making masks and all these other things. And then when we ask, well, do they get to, do they get to wear a mask? I'm not sure about that. Wait a minute. <laughs> You're right. making them make masks for everyone else and they don't even get a chance. And I won't even get on Jack and I'm serious how awful, you know, this virus has been decimating uh, the prison, the people who are in prison, so people yeah. who were not convicted of, who did not have um, death sentences who are, are dying um, in these just ravaged with this COVID. That is, uh, it is tragic, no question. Um, Raphael, to conclude our conversation, it's been such a, a powerful conversation and I appreciate the perspectives you've been able to offer. We, we talked earlier about the, whether we're at a tipping point or not. And if we're not at a tipping point of change, we seem to at least at a tipping point of awareness where you know, the United States and the world at large uh, is more aware of these issues than than ever. If we want to translate that into change, what would you like to see happen next? You know, maybe speaking to our audience both as legal professionals and as human beings, what do you think we need to see to see what is enduring change? And again, as you pointed out, this isn't going to change in the space of a day. Right. Uh, but if right. we can imagine that different tomorrow like what are the right. mindset changes maybe what what is some recommended reading what are some causes and and courses of action that people can look at uh embracing i, I love that the that you say recommended readings because uh you will appreciate this the first thing i'm going to say is just mercy <laughs> that's that's brian stevenson <laughs> brian stevenson who I am so very grateful to you for having come to one of our conferences. That was still remains. I've never in, in, in my entire legal career seen an auditorium of 1500 lawyers in tears. <laughs> that is no, um, in fact, I, I just talked about that speech at, at a company all hands uh, and described Brian's speech as the most powerful speech I've ever seen anybody give anywhere. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I still agree with that. I've not seen anything um, to, to comparable. Um, I, I, there are a couple of things I would I would I would say you know kind of when we when we think about this. So we we've talked about a lot about systems and 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 uh, governments and, and things. But I I say often um, to my clients and even now to uh, to our staffers 
when we say the court, the court are people. These, it's a judge, it's their law clerks, it's their paralegals, they're people. Mm -hmm. uh, when we say uh, law enforcement, law enforcement, those are people. Uh, I, I, the way I think we really start this, and, and I will challenge you, I will challenge you, I've had, fortunately, I've had uh, a handful of my white friends who know what I do, everyone knows what I do, but they've, they've reached out and kind of checked me and say, are you, you know, how are you doing in all of this? Um, and I've had a few of them say uh, to me, well, what can we do? And especially to my white male friends, my, my cisgendered straight white male friends, um, what you can do is use your privilege. Use the, the privilege that this country has said you have, whether you think you have it or not, even if you're in the, the most awful poor situation, I can guarantee you put a black man in that same situation and his situation is worse. So when I say use your privilege, that means when you're sitting in your company staff meeting and you hear that off-color comment and you think to yourself, oh, it was, that was cringeworthy. You, we've all been there, right? I mean, you, you hear that and you go, ooh. Yeah. Um, don't just do that. Say something in that moment. Like that, that's really not cool. You know, in fact, that's the reason uh, George Floyd was was brutalized and murdered the way he was because people don't have value. They don't value black lives. They don't value black men. Um, so I say to not just, and I say that specifically to white men because in this country, in America, there is no higher pinnacle of demographic. Uh, you don't get higher on the demographic ladder than a cisgendered straight white male, it's, unless you're wealthy too. That, that just, you, know, you don't get any, there isn't anyone who has more influence, more sway than you. And I would implore all those people to start using their voice and their privilege to say this is not going. And we've seen it. We've seen some of this. We've seen Tom Brady and, and Aaron Rodgers. And, you, know, we were, you know, I don't know how much, you know, football you guys are. are I, I, I know uh, enough to recognize those names. <laughs> okay. um, uh, and so, you know, I, when, you, when you are a wealthy um, um, you know, in this in this country, you know, voting rights started with land owning wealthy uh, land owning white man. Uh, right now, start using your use your voice uh, on our behalf. And I will say this while having the opportunity: um, this is not the time to have your friends who are people of color initiate and carry and do all of these things. We can't because for for more reasons. One, we're traumatized, <laughs> and even if we weren't. If we had the power to change things, don't you think we would have? <laughs> you think we right. really are just you know, kind of sitting around like, yeah, we could do better, but yeah, we, we, you know, we're just going to sit this. You, the people who have the ability to make a difference, use that. So don't, don't be aware when you do that, that, yeah, somebody who's sitting here is going to say, why are you defending them? Or why are you saying that? And that's where you have to come in as a human being and say, because it's the right thing to do. Because what you said is wrong. And if you continue saying that, you only exasperate and you continue on um, with, with, the, with the, uh, the, the mindset and the mentality of, you know, of kind of where things are. So th that I, I, I would implore right now, if, if we are at a, it, you, know, I, you know, there's a whole lot of things I would say. I, I would say right now in the U.S. Senate, there's an anti, believe it, there's an anti-lynching bill that is being held up by uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. How is it that we are 20 years into the 21st century and we can't pass an anti-lynching bill? 
<laughs> I right. mean, how, how difficult is that? Um, the, the rhetoric that we hear from the White House uh, and that we hear from all of these different areas where, um, you know, be, be rest assured, it's not accidental, it is intentional. There are dog whistles that have been blown in this country for years, and as everyone understands it, it's when you say to the white nationalist at the Charlottesville uh, uh, protest back in 2017 that they're very fine people, and in the same breath, today, you call these protesters animals and thugs. Those words have, they carry meaning and weight, and they, and they float and, and fall on this country, and it, and it weighs us down to where we are now. So I, I'd like to see people step out of their comfort zone for a change, specifically about race relations, specifically about black people, a little broadly, a little more broadly about people of color in general, because, and, and I will tell you, black women, uh, it, it, we, we could go down the list of, of, of all those people, but I, am, I, am, I think if we wanna change things for the people who are most affected, um, step out of your comfort zone and, and actively insist that things change. You have more, uh, and I'm not saying you in particular, but the, those people who are, are cisgendered white men have more power uh, to change on their everyday average uh, 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 walk in life uh, than an entire generation of African-American men, because that's the way this country was set up. Um, this is still a good country. There are still good people here. Um, this, this, is a, this is the original sin, and we are still dealing with it. It just feels like this is the time to change. That's a really powerful note and call to action uh, to end on, Raphael. I really appreciate you joining us for our conversation today and keep up the amazing work you're doing at the ACLU. Thank you so much, Jack. And you continue to be uh, a force of nature in the legal community and for social justice change. Thank you for what you're doing. It is important. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.